reverence and honor for the reading of God's Word. If you have your Bible, we'll be continuing on in our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, you should be able to locate one in the chair cubby in front of you. And as you do so, feel free to wake your May to the 17th chapter of Luke's Gospel. As this morning we continue on and we see the teachings of Jesus concerning His coming kingdom. And so our scripture reading for this morning will be from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Let us hear now the reading of Holy Scripture. These are the words of God. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, From one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. And there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so ends the reading of God's holy word. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? Let us pray. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we do humbly plea that you would do the work of grace upon our hearts that you would shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ upon us through the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit, that we might be rooted in Christ, that we might be built up in Christ and established in the faith. And so grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. In his name we pray, and amen. Please be seated. Well, it was the year 1505 
when it seems that a solitary lightning bolt would be the lightning bolt that would change the course of the world as we know it. The reason? Well, in the year 1505, there was a young student who was making his way back from a nice, pleasant visit with his parents, and he was eager to return to university and eager to return to his studies in law. But it seems that his studies in law would have to wait because he soon found himself caught, trapped on foot in an intense thunderstorm. And indeed, so intense was this lightning storm that it nearly killed him as a lightning bolt came crashing out of the sky beside him. And so this young student did what any respectable person of the Middle Ages would do, and that is he swore to become a monk if only his life would be spared from this lightning. And so this lightning bolt, you could say, literally changed the course of the world as we know it. Because, as you may have guessed, that young man was none other than the young man who sparked the great Protestant Reformation, one Martin Luther. And this storm-tossed decision of his some 500 years ago set him on a path that for the rest of his days he would lay down his life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is exactly what we have in our text this morning as the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that his coming will be like that of lightning falling from the sky. But instead of despair, this calls for a kingdom mindset summed up in the paradox of the kingdom, you might say. That to lose your life for the sake of the gospel is in fact to keep it forever. And so as we walk through this text, we'll look at three simple portions. Looking firstly at the kingdom's presence, secondly the kingdom's judgment, and then lastly we'll consider the kingdom's calling. But all of it coming to a head in our main point, and that is simply this, that to lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ is in fact to keep it forever. To lose your life is in fact to find it. So let's begin with the kingdom's presence in the first two verses. So notice first the audience in verse 20 is that of the Pharisees. And they have this very pointed question to Jesus, namely the question as to when precisely the kingdom of God would come. It's worth us asking the question, now when the Pharisees speak of the kingdom, what is it they envision exactly? Because to them, the coming of the kingdom of God was bound up with very fervent nationalistic expectations. That the Messiah would come and he would flex his military might and he would overthrow the Roman Empire on their behalf. And so to their surprise and no doubt their dismay, just look how Jesus answers in verse 20 by saying, let me firstly tell you how the kingdom is not going to come. It will be so obvious, it will be so explicit that it will not be tr- limited to the well-trained eye. It says, look, it's over there. Look, I found it right here. I remember some time back ago, I had a, an MRI done on my shoulder. And the surgeon came into the exam room and he had the scan, the MRI scan with him and he puts it up on the screen for us both to look at and he starts pointing out one thing after another in this scan. Here's some ligament, here's some cartilage, here's some bone, so on and so forth. And of course, we're both staring at the same scan, but to me, this might as well have just been black blobs on a white sheet of paper. I can't make any sense of it. And so in a roundabout way, I kind of muster up the courage to ask the doc, hey doc, I mean, how is it that you are able to read these things. With a very cocksure smile, the doctor looked at me and said, well, see, 
That's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> because I see things that others don't. And here we have the Pharisees who are accustomed to using apocalyptic, cosmic signs to calculate the coming of the kingdom, and they fancy themselves as those who see things that others don't. And so with their eyes ever fixed on the observable, they ask Jesus, when? And so to implode their expectations, Jesus exhorts the Pharisees that while their nose is sniffing the ground, like a hound dog trying to track the scent of a kingdom, they have dangerously failed to look up and to behold that the kingdom of God itself is embodied right before their very eyes in the person of Christ. Just look, as he emphatically says in verse 21, even switching from speaking in the future tense to the present tense, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You don't need to go searching for the kingdom because the king of the kingdom is within your grasp, if only you had the eyes to see and the ears to hear. If you remember from last week, it's as, it's as if Jesus summons them to learn what only one leper out of ten lepers learned. That it is indeed in the presence of God that there is the fullness of joy. That it is the giver, not the gift, that matters. And of course, Jesus' point in all of that is that that merciful work was kingdom work. We've seen it all throughout Luke's gospel that Jesus heals to show Satan's demise and the kingdom's triumph. Jesus promises to bestow the Spirit as the kingdom's pledge. Jesus comes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. His miracles display the power of the kingdom and all of it pointing to the truth that that future kingdom is now also a present reality because the king has come. Students, if you're not already, I'm sure that you will become very familiar with the term transfer student. Transfer student is, of course, a student who stops studying at one university or college and starts studying at another university or college by way of a transfer. Of course, when you're a student, that means new books, new classes, new teachers. In short, it means almost an entirely new way of life. Students, you need to know that if you are in Christ, you are already, both now and forever, in a far more glorious way, a transfer student. You have been transferred out of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son, and it means a whole new way of life, so to speak. A life empowered by the Spirit, a life of fellowship with fellow kingdom citizens. And if you're here this morning and not a Christian, know that you are not very far from the kingdom this very morning as you are with the covenant people of God. This is why for us, as a church, what a glorious reminder that though the church is certainly not identical to the kingdom of God, the church is in a sense the outpost, the colony of the kingdom of God. That we are not just a man-made social club. We are not a group of nice, well-mannered people, though I'm sure you all are very nice indeed. But rather, we have been made blessed citizens of an unshakable kingdom, such that the gates of Hades cannot, will not, prevail over it. And so on that ominous note, let us look now at the kingdom's judgment in verses 22 through 31. You'll notice, firstly, the audience now switches from the Pharisees to the disciples, as you see in verse 22. 
And he likewise tells his disciples that his coming will not be a game of pin the tail on the kingdom. Instead, as you see verse 24, it will be so obvious, it will be so undeniable as lightning. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will it be with the Son of Man. Kids, the next time you are in a thunderstorm, I want you to notice the lightning. Or better said, I want you to notice how you always notice the lightning. That out of that great big black sky, that when that lightning flashes, your eye always seems to dart to the lightning. And there's that mix of awe and fear in your heart. Well, kids, know that the coming of Jesus Christ will be more glorious and more awesome than that coming, than the brightest light and the darkest of skies. Now, you probably still have the burning question, well, just what is this day that Jesus speaks of, and why does he keep using that curious phrase, the Son of Man? Well, it's worth remembering the phrase Son of Man occurs in books like Ezekiel, but most noticeably in Daniel 7. We have the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and he receives dominion and glory and an unshakable kingdom. Now, my humble interpretation, this is a reference not so much to the second coming of Christ, but a reference to his resurrection and his ascension when Jesus comes to the throne of God. And he indeed receives dominion and power and an everlasting worldwide kingdom, which in many ways makes sense in light of the very next statement, a statement as unexpected as it is ominous. In verse 25, Jesus says, but first... First, he must suffer many things and be rejected. It's difficult to think of two more dissimilar, unalike images than this. Here on the one hand, we have the splendor, the awesomeness, the luminosity of lightning crashing down. And then the pain and shame and dark humiliation of the Son of Man being rejected. And the Lord Jesus is telling both them and us alike that you will not understand my second coming until you understand my first coming. That the cross comes before the crown. That the road to glory is paved with sufferings. Jesus cannot but speak of the kingdom's glory without speaking of the cost of the kingdom. For he tells them, I must. I must. I was appointed for this purpose, to be a man of sorrows, to be pierced for your transgressions, to be crushed for your iniquities, that your sins might be carried far, far away. Can you see how difficult that would be for the disciples to merge those concepts together? This kingdom of, of glory and the man of sorrows into one. No wonder Simon Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him at the mere thought of this. And indeed for you, how hard it may be for you in your present sufferings, in your afflictions, to know with confidence that the Lord Jesus really does rule and reign from on high and that he is coming again. I'm reminded of the wise words of Samuel Rutherford who said, we must learn to trust the love of Christ more than we trust our feelings. Friends, you see the unwavering love of Christ here, that nothing could deter him, 
with his face set like flint to lay down his life and secure an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus goes on and he gives two very fitting examples as to just how unexpected yet certain this coming kingdom is. As you look at verse 26, he says, just like the days of Noah, these ordinary activities of eating and drinking and marriage, they're rolling along every day like today until a deluge of destruction, a flood comes and it destroyed them all. Well, I suppose it was just not but two months ago, I was listening to the radio and as is somewhat a custom in our nation now, there was a, a tribute on the radio, a commemoration of that fateful day that was September 11th, 2001. And many callers are calling in and they're recounting how sad it was to lose loved ones, to lose a father, mother, brother, sister. How in retrospect, if only they could have just one more moment, knowing that would be the last time that they saw that person. Well, there's one caller that really caught my eye that stayed with me. Because he recounted with such chilling dread when he said, you know, the funny thing was about that day was that it began like every other day. It was just an ordinary New York day. And Jesus is saying, so will it be on my day. To be honest for a moment, in Presbyterian circles, in our circles, I think it is highly unlikely that we would be deceived by a so-called prophet who's coming and he's predicting the end of the world, that the world will end on such and such day and such and such time. I think, in fact, we might laugh such foolishness out of the room. But the more pressing question is, while we may not be deceived, will we be prepared? Would we be ready? Would the Son of Man find faith? Or would our complacency, our indifference to to spiritual matters be a sedative? Indeed, how effortless it is to give ourselves to better jobs, better money, better homes, better bodies, better retirement, and yet so little devotion to the coming of the Son of Man. And it's as if Jesus is telling his little flock, if you don't live for my day, you will live only for today. And so he continues on in verse 28, just like the days of Noah, so too the days of Lot, Like any other day, normal, ordinary activities, until, verse 29, Lot goes out from Sodom, Sodom, fire and sulfur rains, and destroyed them all. And just notice as you glance at the end of that verse, and at the end of verse 26, that repeated phrase, and destroyed them all, as if to emphasize just how universal, how all-encompassing was the destruction of those judgments that compels Jesus to tell his disciples, not once, but twice. It seems there are a few things in modern preaching that are more passe, that are more out of fashion than, quote, fire and brimstone preaching. There's this subtle notion in the evangelical church that thankfully we have evolved, we have progressed beyond that era that was so morbid, so morose in retrospect. But friends, here in Luke 17, you have the unalloyed truth that if you don't care much for fire and brimstone preaching, you won't much care for the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ says, if those judgments wiped out to wickedness, how much greater when the Son of Man comes with garments dipped in the blood of his enemies, with the sharpest sword of judgment, 
with a rod of iron to tread the fury of the winepress of God's wrath. See, those episodes of judgment with Noah and Lot were in fact mere previews to a greater reality. And this very point Jesus stresses as you look at verse 30. Again, just as with Noah and Lot, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. But what also? A glorious reminder that the gospel always comes with overtures of both judgment and of grace. Here we have these two terrifying images of judgment. From Noah we have water, a deluge of destruction, a flood, and then from Lot we have fire. Sulfur raining down from heaven, fire and water. And how marvelous to see that Jesus not only warns against such judgment, but we also know that we get to behold how Jesus himself underwent such judgment upon the cross and a baptism of fire. That it was upon the cross that the flood, the full flood of God's wrath towards sin engulfed the Son of God. How it was upon the cross that the fire of God's anger towards sin fell in a full torrent upon the Son of God. And in that judgment, there is the grace of God for sinners. There's the full forgiveness of God to sinners. And so, Jesus does not stop teaching there because the coming of the Son of Man is not only a foreboding event. It is a comforting event. It it indeed is the greatest comfort and hope for those who are in Christ. And so let's continue on as we've seen the kingdom's presence, the kingdom's judgment. Lastly, a look at the kingdom's calling. Because if all this is true, then how do we as disciples respond? How then shall we live? Well, firstly, Jesus calls them and therefore us to a faithful readiness. Look at verse 31. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, there are no doubt differing interpretations to this verse, but for my money, the most immediate reference to the day that Jesus speaks of is not so much to his second coming, but rather to the coming destruction in AD 70 of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman army. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, when you see those Roman legions coming in, that is not the time to go down and pack your big screen TV and your favorite pair of golf clubs. That is the time to run and flee. Consider the words of the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, writing this, that as the Roman legions charged in, everywhere was either slaughter or flight. Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, but butchered wherever they were caught. Now, regardless of AD 70 or the end of time, do you hear what Jesus is telling his flock? The point that we cannot miss is that Jesus is telling his flock, my kingdom is the pearl of the greatest value. Do not forfeit your soul. Do not put your hand to the plow and look back. Trust my words above all else. And in fact, as the master teacher, Jesus brings to bear for us the perfect example. This perfect pithy admonition in verse 32, he says, remember Lot's wife. So I'd ask you, do you remember Lot's wife? Do you remember in Genesis that as Lot and his wife, they're fleeing Sodom, 
And sulfur is raining down from heaven, and Lot's wife turns her head back around to see her homeland just one more time, and indeed it was her last time. And seeking to preserve her life, she's turned into a preservative as she becomes a pillar of salt. But now is the matter of why. I think it's fair to say that it is not so much because of where she looked, but because of what she loved. God had just mercifully delivered her, providing redemption, and yet there's this lustful longing in her to linger just a little bit more in her iniquities. It's as if that turning of her head testified, Lord, just one more moment, just one more fleeting passion. Just let me keep my toe dipped in the pleasures of the world for just a little longer because my citizenship really isn't in heaven after all. I left my heart back in Sodom. See, the truth is the way that she acted in that day revealed the way that she had acted in every other day leading up to it. And so this tiny, tiny verse, remember Lot's wife in a unique way summons us Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Because who we are today, and what we cherish today, and what we value today, and who we love today, is molding us and preparing us for the coming day of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus not only calls for a readiness, but even for a renunciation of one's life. With the next verse that really is both a a promise and a command wrapped in one. As you look at verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. I thought there may be fewer verses that require more faith to grasp, that are more upside down and inside out, that grate against our flesh. And yet at the same time, there are fewer verses that when believed and obeyed and grasped by faith, bring greater reward and joy and blessing and life itself. Do you want to keep your life? Then lay it down. If I could put it this way, the only way not to waste your life is to waste your life. If you don't want to waste your life, then be sure to waste your life. I'll put it this way. Do you recall Mary and her alabaster flask? We met her in Luke 7. If you remember that story, Mary comes in with her expensive ointment, very expensive ointment, and she comes in, And what does she do with it? Pours it out. Waste it. Pours it out. And all the onlookers say, Mary, you you wasted this. You wasted this expensive ointment. And what does Jesus say? This waste wasn't a waste at all because it was done for me. This was, in fact, a beautiful thing. And friends, so it is with all of your life. You want to preserve your life, then give it away. Just think with me for a moment practically how this shakes out. This is God's economy in all things. Husbands, you want a lovely wife? Then give yourself up for her in imitation of Christ. How about in parenting? Parents, to bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord will require nothing less than you laying down your life, saying my life for yours. But then what? Your children rise up and they will call you blessed. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord. And what? It'll be miserable? Obey your parents in the Lord that it might go well with you. How about in service? The man who waters others 
will himself be watered. How about in sacrifice? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, and you will be what? Destroyed? No, unto transformation, the renewal of your mind. How about in persecution? When you are hated for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, what is the response? Rejoice. Rejoice because your reward is great. Your reward is in heaven. Well, how about death? Surely this doesn't even apply up to death. And what does Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is gain. It's as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, please do not let me confuse you. The call of Christ to you is not one of moral improvement. It's not to be a better person. It's not to get some religion in your life. The call of Christ to you is to die. It is to leave your life and to trust Him. The Bible simply calls this repentance into faith. It's the reverse move of what Lot's wife did. It's to turn away from my sin and to turn to Jesus Christ. It's to lose your life. And you will find it because you will find the author of life. And so as the disciples are are drinking all of this in and they're processing it, it seems that they can only muster up one question in verse 37. Lord, where? Remember, we open with the question of when, now this is where. Where? The lightning, the destruction, the one being taken, the other left. Lord, where is all of this going down? In verse 37, Jesus simply colorfully reaffirms what he's already said. Where the corpse is, the vultures gather. I'm sure you've driven down to Texas Highway before many a time and you've seen circling in the air vultures. And of course, it does not take a zoology expert to know that down below there is a corpse of some kind. And Jesus graphically reasserts the coming judgment will be that unmistakable. But I've had time to think it over as to why doesn't Jesus just tell them where? Why doesn't he just answer their question? It seems like a very reasonable question to ask. It's the question we so often ask, isn't it? God, just give me the blueprint. Just give me the narrative. Just give me the story and the plot outline beforehand so that I can know, so that I can be ready. But Jesus doesn't. I can only speculate as to why. And that it would make for a really poor story. That Jesus is not here to be our informant. He is here to be our redeemer and to be our king. He is here to tell the story where he is the hero and we his faithful servants. And so he has told them what is of preeminent concern. When the world is crashing down upon you, lose your life for my sake, and I promise you will keep it, you will find it. And that is a promise they can take to the bank. Well, as we close, let's lay up in our hearts three uses from this portion of God's word. Firstly, the certainty of the kingdom. The certainty of the kingdom. Now, regardless, again, of your view as to whether Jesus is speaking of something partially fulfilled or entirely future, one thing is certain, and that is the certainty of the kingdom. Jesus says that his day will be as undeniable as lightning. As he says in verse 30, so will it be on my day. And just like the days of Noah, so too in our day, the promise of God's coming is mocked, is scorned, is belittled, is looked down upon. Students, you especially need to know that when it comes to the day of the Lord, you will be sold an alternative story. You will be told a fake gospel, in a sense. That the end of humanity, the end of the world, is thousands to millions to billions of years away. 
when the sun fizzles out, when the earth is consumed. But either way, why bother with holiness? Why bother with godliness when there is no face-to-face with the personal triune God, but only a black abyss that awaits me on the other side of death? But the near last verse of the Bible is what? The Lord Jesus saying, Surely I am coming soon. You will see the king in his beauty. A conviction that calls forth a certainty, a faithfulness. What sort of lives ought we to live of holiness? What zeal for godliness? What passion for evangelism? What motivation to fight the good fight knowing that the certain coming of the king is a reality? Secondly, knowing that it is a certain kingdom, consider the calling of the kingdom. We saw in verse 33 that self-preservation is a path to self-destruction. And Jesus points us to the better portion, the paradox of the kingdom, if you like. Lose your life for my sake and you will keep it. And there's the greatest gain of godliness here. This verse is in some ways like a machete to hack your way out of a thicket of idolatry. This means that whether it's my my health, my wealth, my possessions, my ambition, my honor, my life, if all is hacked away, but Christ is gained, then I have the better portion. This is the cost of discipleship. This is a prescription for a life well-lived. A life well lived means you would be able to look back and you could see the the tombs, the obituaries that marked the points where you laid it down, you poured it out, only to be refilled again and again and again. And if that is the calling of the kingdom, lastly, consider and take heart in the comfort of the kingdom. Because friends, God not only comes against man as a righteous judge, but know this, God also comes for man. God comes not only against man, but to those in Christ, God comes for his bride on her behalf to vindicate her, to rescue her, to acquit her, to deliver her, to make her forever blessed. That is the hope of the kingdom. Christian, your comfort, your only comfort, is that you belong, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus Christ. How can I be absolutely sure? How can I know that if I lose my life, I will keep it? Because the Lord Jesus promises that he will keep you both now and forever. For his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, We praise you that we have died with Christ, but we have also been raised with Christ to walk in a newness of life. Help us then to seek the things that truly are above, to know with greater confidence, with greater courage, that you have indeed hidden our lives in Jesus Christ. And that when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. And so indeed, right now counts for all eternity. In his name we pray. And amen.